0: The old pilot's plane tails, passing more gas. Airway refueling is, by its very nature, one of the riskier military pastimes. When, in current practice, it's not a particularly hard exercise, especially for fighter crews whose aircraft are exceedingly nimble. When given a tanker to use, it can be on station, flying a large holding pattern. It might be joining a formation of aircraft on a long transit to give them fuel they need to complete a leg of their journey. Or it might be following a QRA aircraft during an intercept, ready and available whenever the QRA fighter needs to top up his fuel state the join between a fighter with an air intercept radar is bread and butter to most crews the tanker merely flies around and the fighter does all the work although it can be accomplished the other way around as he makes his final approach from astern, the leader usually puts himself closest to the tanker's left side and lines up his formation in a loose echelon left outside of him after being cleared to join he stabilizes on the tanker's wing like all formation maneuvers until he's stabilized he keeps a little separation as an escape lane in case he misjudges his approach once alongside the tanker it's the tanker's captain who controls the formation clearing each aircraft in turn to cycle through the hoses This is usually done on the radio, but if no radio procedures are in force then the whole thing can be done silently using simple signals such as trailing a hose which means I have fuel to give you. The anti-collision beacon off for a while means clear a stern a hose. The receiver always takes the furthest hose. When astern, the hose pod traffic lights, red, amber and green, are used for the actual refuelling. Red means don't make contact, or if in contact, fly a breakaway manoeuvre. Amber means clear for contact. Once in contact, the fighter will push the hose up until the green light comes on, which means fuel flows. A flashing green indicates that you've had your allowance and you're clear to withdraw. Once clear and astern, the fighters will cycle through to echelon right and then depart. The hardest bit is, of course, making contact. Once alongside, the fighter crews will do their refuelling checks. In the F-3 Tornado, for example, they went like this. Fuel, check quantity, radar, standby. The radar is powerful and there might be fuel spraying around. TACAN to receive, IFF interrogator and IFF both to stand by. Multiple transponders in the same piece of sky are confusing for controllers who are easily confused souls. HF off for the same reason as the radar. Master arm safety switch standby, laid arm switch on the trigger, safe, and on the flight refuel panel set internal all and fin off as required. Tank inter and fuel crossfeed closed. close, sequence switched to normal. Then it would be time to put the probe out, check the ready light was illuminated, set the aircraft lights for comfort, and put the probe light on so the nav can see it at night. From astern the hose, the fighter would move up to a waiting position, about 10 to 15 feet behind the basket. Once cleared for contact, with gentle manoeuvres the idea was to approach at a walking pace, flying up the line of the hose, using the markings under the pod or on the tanker fuselage as a guide. It was important not to try to line the basket up with the probe or to watch the basket's behaviour. As the aircraft approached the drogue, the bow wave created by the nose of the fighter was going to move the basket, so the usual line-up was with the basket closer and lower than might look right, expecting it to move into the correct position as the aircraft closed. The nav could be helpful, with useful comments like, What the hell are you doing now? Or, You know there's a beer on this but usually they just called the miss position so that you could adjust your line-up next time. As the probe entered the basket, a spark of static electricity might flash across, but then the spokes were guided into the centre and the tip of the probe would make a comforting clunk as a good contact was made. A little more power would be needed to push the weight of the hose up into the pod where the hydraulically powered drum unit, the Hoodoo, HDU, would take up the slack, and after pushing about 10 feet in, the green light would come on and the tanker would call fuel flows. Now it was just a matter of keeping position. As the aircraft became heavier, it would take more power to stay in contact. If you started to drop back and didn't arrest it quickly, the drum brake might come on, immediately pulling the basket free from the probe, and the tanker guys would have to move you away while they cycled the hose in and out again before you could finish the refuel. In the tornado with stores underneath, particularly if the tanker was higher than was optimum for poor Mother Riley's cardboard aeroplane, it was fairly common to run out of puff and reach maximum dry power. Now the trick was to inch one engine into minimum burner and control your fore and aft position with the other one. Do it ham-fistedly, and it was easy to either overcook the amount of burner and start pushing the hose in too far, or pull the other engine back too far and drop out of contact. Either was a bit of a nightmare, and in burner you were consuming fuel almost as fast as it was coming in. When complete and cleared astern, it was just a matter of gently drawing away without putting the hoodoo brake on, until, when at full extension, the hose would stop and the probe would simply disengage. If you did it well, and came away down the natural line of the hose, the basket would just sit there, but if you came away too high, too low, or off to one side, it would fly around to its normal position, and could easily give you a whack on the way. Now it was just a matter of moving to the right, gathering all your formation together, and then departing the tanker, usually with 15 feet of flaming afterburner, just to demonstrate who was the master race and that there was fuel to be burned. There were a few things that might go wrong, of course. A bit of over-controlling as the basket came close, and it was easy to clobber the end of the hose with the airframe. I've seen it do complete circuits around a fuselage, whacking all sorts of expensive stuff on the way and giving the canopy a lovely set of scratches. There are plenty of pilots who've managed to stick it on the end of the ray dome or suck it down an engine intake. The first is just embarrassing, but the second can stall the engine. A hose pushed up too fast can create a whip effect where the bend of the hose will travel up to the hoodoo and then, like a loop in a skipping rope, come back down to the receiver. If the unfortunate pilot hasn't realised what's happening in time and pulled out, the hose can flick the end of his probe right off. It has a weak link designed into it just below the tip. The same result is common if the tanker crew haven't primed the hose properly by filling it full of fuel. When primed, the hose is comfortably stable. When empty, it can whip around like an angry cat's (coughs) tail, Stabbing at the basket or coming in too fast will often poke your probe right through the spokes. It wrecks the basket, but more expensive is the engine destruction that might occur should any bits of metal come loose and disappear down an intake. The F-18's probe was fairly close to sensitive angle of attack and pitot probes. I once grandly attempted to coach my squadron mates through the basics and then demonstrated how not to do it by bending a pitot probe, When I left Australia to come home, 77, my beloved F-18 squadron, presented me with that bent probe on a plaque bearing the words To the potent POM, we hope you have better luck getting it in at home. KC-135 boom-equipped tankers can be converted to a probe and drogue system using a special adapter unit. In this configuration, the tanker retains its articulated boom, but has a short hose and drogue attached to the end of it instead of the usual nozzle. This arrangement has no play, since the boom is in a fixed position and the hose is only a few feet long. Having made contact, the receiver has to move forward and to one side to bend the little hose into an S-shape. Taking up this position, turns valves on to allow the fuel to flow, but there's very little room for error, and it's an unforgiving system that has broken many a probe off. Of course, not all problems are the receiver's fault. Hoses fail or snap, which can leave an embarrassingly long appendage dangling below and complicating the landing a little. The pilots to admire, the ones who can perform this little aerial refuelling trick, aren't the fighter jocks but the heavy boys, who have to manhandle many tons of aircraft to within feet of another equally huge flying machine. Their job is hampered by flying controls that aren't particularly well suited to formation flying, and their aircraft carry huge amounts of inertia that takes true skill to master. Helicopter pilots also require great skill to cope with the long probe needed to safely approach a refuelling hose which amplifies every little movement they make. They are also well aware that the safety margins for them are small as the space between their whirling rotor blades of death and the basket is far from large and should the worst happen they aren't equipped with ejector seats. Of course, not every air refuelling mission goes according to plan, and some, sadly, end in tragedy. We recently heard of an F-18 pilot who had a mid-air collision with his C-130 tanker off the coast of Japan. The Hornet pilot lost situational awareness whilst trying to perform an unexpected formation change at night, and struck the Hercules, damaging it sufficiently for it to lose control and plummet into the sea on fire, killing all five on board. The Hornet crew of two ejected, but only one was recovered alive. Luckily, this is a very rare occurrence, but it brings to mind a similar accident that occurred whilst I was serving. It was back in 1975 when a converted V-bomber tanker, a Handley Page Victor, K1A from 57 Squadron at Marham, was refuelling a pair of buccaneers from the conversion unit at Honington. One of the buccaneer pilots was carrying out a check flight and was attempting to make contact with the left-side wing hose. He drove his bomber in too fast and overtook the basket, which bumped its way down the side of his canopy and along the spine of his aircraft. The pilot tried to back off, but in doing so allowed his aircraft to rise above the victor's wing, and whether it was his mishandling or turbulence from the wing, as he dropped back he clipped the tea-tail of the tanker. For a moment nothing happened, but then the tailplane began to visibly oscillate. The other buccaneer pilot told the Victor crew to abandon their aircraft, but before they could, the tailplane party company and the big tanker violently nosed over into a dive. Inside the little cabin of the Victor, the crew would have been subjected to enormous negative G-loads and only the two pilots were equipped with ejector seats. The rear crew of three would have needed to manually don parachutes and abandon through an escape hatch. With the forces that they were being subjected to, they had no chance at all. As the aircraft pitched beyond the vertical, the captain, Keith Hanscom, managed to get a couple of fingers around the seat pan firing handle, and he ejected. But his co-pilot, along with the rest of the crew, died when the loads on the aircraft tore it apart. In the cold sea, Hanscom was lucky to survive. It took some time for him to be found, and although he was wearing an immersion suit to protect him from the cold water, beneath he wasn't dressed properly. When found, he was unconscious, and in severe hypothermia. The medics were amazed that he had survived. In a link to the F-18 accident I just described, it appears that poor supervision and preparation may well have been a contributing factor in this tragic accident. One of the most famous air-to-air refuelling accidents occurred with a boom system that is used by the US Air Force. In 1966, a B-52 was tanking from a KC-135 over the Mediterranean Sea. The pilot recalled, We came in behind the tanker, and we were a little bit fast, and we started to overrun him a little bit. There's a procedure they have in refueling where if the boom operator feels that you're getting too close and it's a dangerous situation, he'll call, break away, break away, break away. There was no call for a breakaway, so we didn't see anything dangerous about the situation. But all of a sudden, all hell seemed to break loose. The planes collided, with the nozzle of the refuelling boom piercing the top of the B-52 fuselage, breaking a longer run and covering it with jet fuel. There was an explosion that was witnessed by a second B-52 about a mile away. The left wing failed and the bomber crashed. All four crew members on the tanker and four of the seven-man crew aboard the B-52 were killed. What makes the accident particularly memorable was that the bomber was carrying four live Mark 28 thermonuclear hydrogen bombs as part of Operation Chrome Dome. Three of the bombs came down in Andalusia, Spain, and were found within 24 hours. In two of them, the conventional explosives that they contained in addition to the nuclear core had detonated, spreading radioactive contamination around, but luckily not initiating a nuclear explosion. The fourth weapon had entered the sea, and after a search that lasted 80 days, it was eventually found and recovered from a depth of 2,900 feet, that's 880 meters. The recovery of this weapon by the Navy is in itself a remarkable story. There are other remarkable air-to-air refueling stories, such as the attack on Stanley Airfield during the Falklands War that I covered in my previous tale, Black Bucks Over the Atlantic. But I'm going to leave you with one final amazing fact. The SR 71 Blackbird made frequent use of air to air refueling. Indeed, many of its missions were impossible to conduct without tanker support. The amazing spy plane didn't have great takeoff performance, which sometimes required it to take off with less than full tanks. Once airborne, it would accelerate to high supersonic speed to heat up the airframe and close all the expansion gaps it had when cold, sealing the leaky fuel tanks. Then on LTTR missions, that's Launch to Tanker Rendezvous, it would be topped up with its unique JP7 fuel and head off to do its special secret thing at over Mach 3. Good reviews helps Plane Tales to reach a wider audience, so if you've enjoyed this story or other ones, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. PlaneTales is, of course, a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find that at AirlinePilotGuy.com.